Kreusser, welcome to Recovery Now Radio, which is brought to you in conjunction with Adveriad Recovery and Living Room Cardiff. Adveriad Recovery is a registered charity offering specialist support to those with co-occurring substance misuse and mental health conditions. Living Room Cardiff provides ongoing support and aftercare as a community-based recovery centre that has an all-addictions approach, including gambling, alcohol, drugs, both prescribed and illicit, sex, eating disorders, gaming, etc., or any other harmful behaviour. We welcome anyone who needs confidential support in taking those first important steps towards change and recovery. Family members and friends are also catered for. For further details, please see the Adveriad Recovery website, www.adveriad.org.uk and www.livingroom-cardiff.com. Diochen Thank you so much. Hello and welcome to Recovery Now Radio, brought to you by the Living Room and at Veriad. Let's recover together. Well, welcome to Recovery Now Radio. I'm Julie and I'm also joined today by Carol who is going to co-present as we have a very special guest. It's Winford, who this month celebrates 29 years of sobriety, which is amazing. Many of you will know Winford, but all you listeners will recognise his voice from the intro at the beginning of each and every episode. Winford is the founder of The Living Room. Ten years ago, he had a vision to open a recovery centre with a unique all-addiction approach so without him, we wouldn't be here today in the guise of Recovery Now Radio. Many of us are in recovery, and without Winford, we would not have been given the opportunity to understand the concept of change, the concept of love and being part of a caring, giving community family who has inspired everybody, and we've been inspired by this giant of a gentleman. So, Boradar Winford, how are you? I am very well, thank you very much. Lovely to be here. So we're going to begin in our usual way, so you've chosen your first piece of music, which is Doris Day, K Sera Sera. So tell us, Winford, why did you choose that one? Well, it takes me back to my childhood in a little village called San Lovney in the old Carnarvonshire. And I used to go and sing with Mrs R.J. Roberts, who was the wife of a deacon who lived next door. And this was the number one song at the time. K Sera Sera, what will be, will be. And it took me, I reckon, about... 60 odd years to realize the truth that was in that song. So that's why it's uh, my number one choice. Wonderful. Will I be pretty? Will I be rich? Here's what 
she said to me. Que sera, sera, whatever will be, will be. The future's not ours to see. Que sera, sera, what will be, will be. When I grew up and fell in love, I asked my sweetheart what lies ahead. Will we have rainbows day after day? Here's what my sweetheart said. Que sera, sera, whatever will be, will be. The future's not ours to see. Que sera, sera. What will be, will be Now I have children of my own They ask their mother, what will I be? Will I be handsome? Will I be rich? I tell them tenderly Que sera, sera Sera, sera, what will be, will be. Que sera, sera. So that was Que Sera, Sera by Doris Day. Um, you're listening to Recovery Now Radio, brought to you from the living room in a very ad. Let's recover together. Well, that was a lovely song to start with, Winford. That really took us all back, I think, to our childhood. So thank you for that. So I'm going to hand over to Carol now. Well, Wilford, um, were you as a growing child aware of your parents and your local community's ex- expectations on you? Well, yes, I was a minister's a child and uh, so my identity really was decided for me then, which was part of my problem. I think addiction really has a lot to do with identity. Who or what am I at source? And I think the journey of self-discovery started for me right about then because I wanted to really find out who I really, really was at source, who or what was doing the living and the dying in Winford's name. And all these labels were being heaped upon me. You know, minister's son, I was expected to be some kind of curate to my father. I never asked to be cast in that role, but it was expected of me. At school, teachers expected me to set an example to other children. Um, children's parents expected the minister's son to be a good boy behaving and also my peers uh, if the minister's son does something that gives everybody carte blanche to do it so I I was very aware of that and um, I I suppose I was highly sensitive I think this is true of all addicts I think if you take a cross-section of any addict you'll find touchy 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 throughout you know like Brighton Rock uh, so I was highly sensitive. Incidentally, I think that's why creativity and addiction are very close bedfellows. Um, so I was kind of looking, as most of us are, for my heart's desire to be loved for itself. I wanted to be loved, desperately wanted to be loved. And I was looking for evidence of that. And at the time, I didn't know that no parent really can love a child as that child wants to be loved, even with the best will in the world. Uh, we, we come into the world through our parents, but we are not from them. 
So if you, if you like, we're almost like adoptees. Uh, we're looking for my real dad. And uh, I suppose that's how the spiritual journey starts. But I didn't have that information at the time. So what I thought was, I'm not being loved here, so I would like to be loved, treasured, valued, and appreciated. And that was too much to comprehend, you know. And in our family, and in most families, we never communicated at any emotional depth. Feelings weren't allowed, and we weren't really encouraged to think independently. So there was nowhere to take these hurtful feelings and thoughts. I couldn't share it with anybody. So I was left kind of abandoned on my own with all these uncomfortable thoughts and feelings. And then the only thing I could do then, I suppose, was to disassociate myself from them, to push, push them away. You know, when a young man gets drunk before going to a party, he's basically arranging things. So he doesn't have to be himself at the party, isn't he? So the question is not why does he drink or take drugs or engage in other harmful behaviours. The real question is why does he feel the need to flee from himself? So that's what I started doing then. And of course, you know, the seed had been planted. Possibly my heart's desire to be loved for itself wasn't being satisfied. So I started, maybe unwittingly, looking for more evidence of that and I came across plenty of it. For example, my, my mother disappeared one day and nobody told me where she'd gone. I eventually found out that she was in hospital and very ill. Now, the family didn't choose to tell me. They said in order to protect me. But that's not how I interpreted the thing. I saw it as me being outside this clique, not being a part of this family. And it reinforced that growing thought in me that I was not loved, treasured, valued and appreciated as I wanted to be loved, treasured, valued and appreciated. And whatever else happened in life, whatever challenges came, the ups and downs of life as tends to happen, then I treated them all the same by trying to push them away, to isolate myself from them. And in that very act, I started to lose touch with who or what I was and I stopped trusting my gut instincts, my gut feelings. Thank you Winford, that was you know, a really young man looking for, for love and, and for the guidance as well I think. Yeah. So, so your next piece of music now, we'll move on to that and it's I Want to Hold Your Hand by the Beatles. So well, I Want to Hold Your Hand uh, by the Beatles, I mean I remember this song coming out, we went absolutely wild about it, you know, there was so much dancing to it and so much fun and joy and there was me trapped you know, a, a minister's son, where alcohol and things like this were anathema, and all the young people enjoying themselves, and enjoying themselves somehow wasn't a part of that life as a minister's son. So I was caught there with one foot in this old kind of puritanical attitude towards in the emerging, new, exciting, youthful atmosphere of the 60s, you know, and I was trapped there in limbo, as it were, with huge problems mm. regarding identity and who or what I was. But this came along and enabled me for just a few hours at the youth club in Penagroyes to, to just throw off all inhibitions and just be who I wanted to be, which was me. And I wasn't allowed to be that somehow, but this record did temporarily. I think you'll understand 
to Recovery Now Radio brought to you from the Living Room and at Veriad. That was the Beatles and I want to hold your hand. So Carol. Well thank you Winford for your opening um, um, words there on your uh, background up in this small village up in North Wales in the um, 50s and 60s. On the back cover of your uh, autobiography entitled No Room to Live, there's a sentence there which um, took my notice in preparation for today and this is what it says. Winford, an addict of some sort from a very young age. What do you think of that? Yes, well, as I said, you know, I was running away from those uncomfortable thoughts and feelings very, very early on. I, I struggled with, um, I suppose, at junior school, uh, the infant school, the junior school, I, I struggled. I was struggling with education, I think, to be true. Um, I had one-to-one attention there and I managed somehow to pass my 11 plus. I was the only one in school to pass the LM plus and of course that's, that was a very, very discriminatory act at the time. Uh, once you were in the BE you were deemed failures for the rest of your life. So at least I was in the A class. And then there were huge expectations. Uh, my family had expectations around my educational uh, achievements. I remember the first report I had from my secondary school placed me 21 out of 31 and my parents were appalled, absolutely appalled, that I was 21 uh, uh, out of 31, that I should be number one, two or three at least. So uh, that was conveyed to me very, very clearly and I was under immense pressure from then on. Now when, um, when the second report came, I was 30 out of 31. I'd, I'd had 15 in French, uh, 33 and something else. So I was so terrified of the reaction that I amended those reports so that I get 95 in French <laughs> or 88 in whatever it was. And I thought I got away from with it because when I took the report home and my parents were eager to see it, they were overjoyed 
And then my mother noticed that the ink had started to run in a particular mm -hmm. place. She noticed that they had been changed and then there was all hell to lose. And I remember what I did instantly, exactly what an addict had. I ran upstairs to the toilet, opened uh, one of the cupboards there and there was something with acid on it and I poured acid into my eye. And that was divertory activity. Uh, I diverted attention away from something that was painful and of course everybody was fussing then about my eye taking me to the doctor and so forth. And the doctor, I remember him asking, Dr. Ellis asking, why did you do this Winford? And I said I didn't know, but I did know. I did know. So even at that age I was, you know, planning ways to avoid really addressing painful situations in my life. It then evolved to stealing my mother's barbiturates and when she noticed that I was doing that, I became a friend to old people in the community. I used to visit old people because I knew that old people tended to take more tablets and pills than anybody else. And while they were making a cup of tea for me, because I was, you know, the curate uh, to my father's uh, minister job, um, you know, I'd be rifling through their cupboards until I found the ones that really worked. And then I became a lifetime friend to these people then. I used to, that's what I did for a long, long time. So my, my secondary school, really, I, I went through in a kind of stupefied uh, uh, way. You know, not really waking up till, till midday, uh, not doing very well academically. Uh, and also being classed as top, as we say in Welsh, you know, um, dull. And I wasn't. It was very odd being labelled. I knew I was intelligent. I knew I was capable of doing things. And yet I'd been labelled and put into this pigeonhole. And uh, that happens to lots and lots of people, sadly. Then it evolved into misusing food. I used to steal money from my mother's purse and buy these heavy um, puddings, you know, mid-morning. That would allay f uh, pain in my stomach and so forth. And then sex came along, of course, uh, masturbation, and that's a stupefier as well. But I did have Miss World, a woman I, I called Miss World, who was well into her 80s, had very little hair on her head, but she loved me. <laughs> and I used to go and see her every night. I used to, she used to sit up waiting for me. She'd have a cup of tea for me waiting. And we used to sing hymns around the piano because she had a beautiful alto voice. And she loved me unconditionally. And she was so young, talking about sex and everything imaginable, you know, uh, in her 80s. And, and she was the one, really, who kept me alive because I had tried to commit suicide. You know, maybe it was a, a cry for attention or something. But she was the one who showed me that I was loved, you know, and was treasured, valued and appreciated. And she kept me alive, dear Miss World. I later wrote uh, a series for television and she played a prominent part, Miss World, in this uh, series about my childhood. But I found childhood excruciatingly painful. I had a headmaster who, and I didn't get along at all. I remember, you know, I'd won some public speaking competition throughout Wales. I was very good at doing things like that. And I remember there was a concert where all the parents were in school. and. Uh, and he was saying wonderful things about me, you know, how I contributed to the social life of the school and so forth. And all the audience were clapping. And while they were clapping, he turned to me and he said, you do realize, don't you, boy, that I don't mean a word of what I said. And that's where I begin, began to doubt authority figures, that people were saying one thing 
and doing something else. And of course, in my day-to-day -day existence, I was again looking for more and more evidence of that what I believed was a truth. So my childhood, I wouldn't wish on anybody, to be honest mm -hmm. with you. But at the same time, having said that, you know, it has provided me with, with material that has kept me going for many, many years. Uh, it has given me immense material to write about. And most of it, ironically, very funny stuff, you know, <laughs> very funny stuff. Because humour and tragedy are very, very close bedfellows. And so, you know, I, I love my parents very, very much. I, I'll talk perhaps later about how I came to love them and see them as ordinary human beings trying to do the best with what they had, like most of us really. But the childhood itself, I wouldn't wish on my worst uh, enemy. Well, we'll just stop there, Winford. Um, so your next piece of music is Mozart's Clarinet Concerto in A minor. Why this particular song? Well, you know, I did eventually end up in college, uh, Welsh College of Music and Drama. I then joined uh, the BBC. Uh, I was a floor manager here. And uh, I then won a scholarship uh, by the Arts Council to become a trainee director. And I worked in Exeter and Birmingham at the Midland Arts Centre in Cannon Hill there with Philip Headley and people like that. I was invited back to North Wales by the Theatre Cymru then, Wilbur Lloyd Roberts, who was a, a renowned uh, theatre producer in Wales, invited me back to direct three commissioned plays for the Nationalised Edward, which was held in Bangor that year, I think 1973, I think it was. And uh, I'm not sure of that year, mind, but. Uh, I went back to North Wales and I was working on these plays uh, by John William Jones, who was again a renowned playwright, and I was rehearsing in Bangor. And I had a day off on the Sunday and uh, I went for a walk in Dinastinche, which is my favourite place on God's earth. I believe God exists in Dinastinche, so if you ever get a chance to visit Dinastinche, go there. And I was walking on the, 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 the front, seafront on this Sunday afternoon, and I came across Meira. Uh, Meira was in school with me and we used to sing uh, duets together, Blood in Gwyn, White Flower, we won. Uh, I was singing alto, she was a, a year or two older than me and she was singing soprano and I hadn't seen her for years and we just clicked that day. She was there with a boyfriend from mm -hmm. Anglesey. She got rid of that boyfriend that night and uh, I invited her to rehearsals to come along, not thinking that she would come, you know. And the next thing I heard was she'd invited herself along to, uh, to Bangor, to the rehearsal room. And later that night, uh, we were having a drink in one of the hotels in, in Bangor. And we were asked to leave because we were caught kissing. <laughs> <laughs> but this is the music I chose for um, that uh, production. It, um, it, it is by Mozart, the clarinet concerto in A minor. It's in the second movement and it's a little bit in, but this is the phrase I loved and this is uh, why I've chosen it, because it reminds me not only of that production of that time, but of course of when I first really fell in love with Meira.
what a beautiful, calming um, um, piece of music selected from uh, Mozart's great composition there. I'm interested now, um, Winford, in um, taking you back, obviously, to your career. You're, you are forming your career now. You are in love with your beautiful Meira who is still with you to this very present day. Were you aware then that your drinking was starting to have an impact on every aspect of your life? And if I could use the term that we hear very often in recovery, um, the invisible line. Do you recall, are you able to identify when you crossed over that invisible line? Oh yes, very clearly. Um, you see, I hadn't been drinking at all because it was anathema in our family. And I did have a drink once. I think um, I, I had a cold and uh, uh, somebody gave me some whiskey and sugar in it and hot water. And it did something to me. And there was a kind of unconscious uh, commitment made on my part. Uh, once I was free of this, what I regarded then as a purely tannical kind of upbringing, that I would uh, reconnect with this uh, fluid that offered so much. And I came to college uh, in 1966 at the College of Music and Drama here. And you know, my parents had been in touch with deacons and other ministers down here to make sure that I behaved myself as a minister's son and kept that identity going. So uh, when I joined uh, my fellow students at college, they were going to the horse and groom on the first night to get to know themselves. I went to my bedsit in Allen's Bank Road in Cardiff on my own. And the following day, I heard stories about them getting to know each other and the fun they were having, and they were bonding. And I was again on the outside looking in. I had that experience of being on the outside looking in, not being a part of. That sense of separateness, really, the unbearable burden of aloneness was weighing heavily on me. So the second night I decided I'm going to go to that horse and groom. And that night I did go to the horse and groom and that night I got drunk. And after that night I never ever walked into any horse and groom or club or anything like that again without the sole intention of getting drunk. But you asked me when was I aware that it was a problem. It was at the end of the first term at college. I went home to North Wales and I was just feeling restless and irritable and discontent as it says. Uh, and on a Saturday night I went to Carnarvon and I went to the back of the Royal Hotel lest somebody see me and report to my father that the minister's son had been seen in a pub or drinking or something like that. And I had two large vodkas and it fixed me. And I knew then, this ain't right, that it's doing something for me that I can't do for myself. But I immediately dismissed it. And I dismissed it from my consciousness for the rest 23 years. So it um, took predominance in your life for about 23 years. And that is when I would think that uh, your family, friends, colleagues, in the acting theatre world here in Wales were really recognising that you had a alcohol problem? Yes, I, I, I certainly think so. I think the alcohol problem had started really affecting my work when I was at the BBC. 
I mean, there was a culture at the BBC. I joined the BBC on the 1st of July 1969, the same day as Prince Charles was invested in Carnarvon Castle. And uh, there was a culture of heavy drinking at the BBC. It was encouraged, everybody drank there, um, lunchtime, people rolling back drunk in the afternoon and so forth. And I saw many, many people of my generation die in ignorance from alcoholism then. What saved me was that I, I left the BBC after 18 months on this Arts Council scholarship. But I'm convinced if I'd stayed at the BBC, I wouldn't be talking to you now. I would have died like many of the others of my uh, generation uh, in ignorance. But yes, it was affecting. Um, I was drinking more and more. I was drinking in order to work. I got to thinking that I did my best work when drinking and under the influence of drink. Um, I believed the lies it was telling me. Um, it wasn't um, having a very good effect on my career. My behaviour as a result was sometimes disrespect, disrespectful towards my fellow workers. You know, I, I, I was, I'll be humble and tell you, I was quite talented. I was talented. I was a very good director. And I, I remember directing the first ever Welsh rock opera in Wales, uh, near Ben Eyre. And uh, the production here in Cardiff was spot on. People were coming from all over to see the rehearsals, it was spot on. But then, for the first time, I was using radio mics, for example. And radio mics, we had to have a license from the Home Office then, because they were affecting police radio and ambulance radios and so forth. And we had these radio mics. and. Um, the performance, only one performance at the National Estelle, and these radio mics went down, uh, two or three of them failed and affected the whole production. And, and did that affect oh, yourself? Oh, uh, immensely. It, it really affected me. I didn't direct after that. I didn't direct after that. I blamed myself for it, you know, and uh, although I'd won these scholarships and, 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 and I was able to do it, you know, with my eyes closed. I didn't direct after that because I took full responsibility for it and it really affected my self-esteem. And that, I think, is what we do, isn't it? We personalise uh, these things and it has such a negative uh, effect. So it, it really confirmed some core beliefs I had myself, really, you know, that things were always going wrong in my life, that I, I wasn't really loved and, you know, in the end I'd become unlovable really because I'd internalised that to such an extent I, I believed I was incapable of being loved and when Mayra would tell me she loved me I said why do you lie to me why can't you be honest why can't you you know because that was the how I saw myself. So now we're going to uh, hear a Welsh song which illustrates that um, regardless of how dark or hopeless our self-talk and our way of looking at ourselves might be. This song, which is called in Welsh Nibi no Smordewich Nadoid Ser, would you like to just say a few words as to why you chose this very beautiful song? Well, it's a, it's a song I wrote uh, the words for and uh, Sean Ellen Jones, uh, a friend of mine, uh, wrote the music and it was uh, uh, an entry in the Song for Wales competition. Carney Gumry came second at the time. Um, it's, you know, I've grown to understand the suffering as potentially the greatest creative force in nature 
and I looked at suffering in a completely negative way rather than seeing it in a more positive way as pointing towards the solution really uh, rather than running to the doctor to, to medicate the, the symptoms of the pain I really had to use the pain in a positive light to, to find the solution to my problem. You know, order prevails throughout the universe. You know, this um, life uh, energy that moves the planet, uh, controls day and night, the ebb and flow of the sea, the seasons and so forth. My heartbeat has to beat uh, at a certain uh, rhythm per minute, otherwise I'll have hypertension or a heart attack. And the, the, my temperature, the body temperature has to keep within certain confines, otherwise I'm in trouble. So order prevails throughout the universe. But where there is disorder, and there's no more disorder than alcoholism, I don't believe, then the universe wants to restore order. And the way it does that is through suffering, potentially the greatest creative force in nature, the only thing that got me to change my ways. And that really is what is captured in this song. There was never a night so dark that there weren't stars.
We've just heard Angharad Bryn and Stefan Fries sing Nibi Nos Mordowich, which was composed by Winford Ellis Owen, the lyrics, and Sean Ellen Jones, who actually composed the music. So, Winford, I believe that you uh, found yourself one afternoon knocking at the door of a really distinguished rehab, the only rehab, I think, in Wales at the time, on the outskirts of Aberystwyth. Yes, I'd, I'd uh, escaped from my responsibility as a husband, as a father, you know, to, to Bangor in North Wales, uh, to work on a commission place for the Nationalist Theatre at Aberystwyth with uh, Graham Laker, who was the artistic director then. I was turning up drunk in the morning in a dreadful state. And he was the guy who said exactly the right words, in exactly the right order, at exactly the right time, that led to me to start crossing that bridge to normal living. And what he said was, Winford, when are you going to do something about your drinking? And you're saying, how many thousands of people said that to me over the years? Well, only two people ever confronted me. And that's something you need to know about addiction. Nobody talks about it. It's there like an elephant in the middle of the room. Everybody knows it's there and everybody walks on eggshells around pretending it's not there. Nobody feels in a family where there's addiction. Mom, why are you crying? I'm not crying, I just got something in my eye. Dad, why are you angry? I'm not angry, boy, I'm not angry. I'm not allowed to think either because to think might be to think things aren't quite right. Anyway, that led to me travelling in style, though I was heavily in debt, taxi the whole way from Bangor to Aberystwyth and knocking at this treatment centre door. And I'd stopped at every off-licence on the way. I was wearing shorts and a t-shirt. I caught my knee on something. There was blood running down my, my, my leg. I was drunk. I knocked at this door and this woman answered. She said, you're not coming in here, you're drunk. And I thought, bloody hell, it's the only place in Wales that helps people <laughs> like me. And they're sending me away. And thank God they did. Because on that Friday, I wasn't ready. By the Sunday night, however, I was teachable and prepared to listen and it was there in the shadow of an off-license on the Sunday night with the empty bottle of vodka on the floor from the previous night and a new one newly bought ready to drink in my hand that's when the miracle happened for me that's when the denial was removed temporarily that's when I saw myself as I was and it brought me to my knees and several things happened to me all at the same time one a realization that I couldn't blame my long dead mother and father or my brother and sister or Mayra, my two daughters or what few friends we had and the myriad of enemies I had and more importantly that I couldn't blame myself. I didn't have a choice in this. It was alcohol that decided. It was alcohol that dictated. The other thing that happened was the fear of death left me. Ironically, though I was terrified of dying, I was committing suicide because I believe all addicts really, it's a soul drawn out form of suicide and all of a sudden the fear of death left me and uh, and then uh, the third thing that happened to me was uh, a realization that everything is perfect exactly as it is and my sponsor is to tell a story about the farmer from Habsburg who had priceless horse that ran away and so forth you know and the local people saying oh what bad luck and the farmer just saying good luck bad luck who knows and then the following day his son fell down a ravine looking for this damn horse <gasps> what bad luck bad luck good luck said the farmer who knows then the following week this white horse returns with another hundred horses just as priceless and the people saying well what good luck and the farmer just saying good luck bad luck who knows and then of course the following day the king of Habsburg declares war on their neighbour and all the young men under 30 were called up to fight in this war. Of course the farmer's son wasn't called up, if you remember he broke his leg 
take you to three places. So the people are saying, oh, what good luck? And the farmer just said, good luck, bad luck, who knows? So that's how life goes, up and down, up and down, or down and up, rather, down and up. So today I ask for nothing, I expect nothing, and accept everything that comes. That was the last drink I had, but I still took the tablets that I have three doctors prescribing for me, and I went back to the bedsit where I escaped to, and I took those tablets, and the following morning I woke up, and I thought I'd had a stroke. I couldn't move my tongue, couldn't open my eyes, couldn't uh, do anything. I've never been so frightened in my life. And this young lady who gave me solace in this attic came up, started rubbing water on my lips and so forth, getting me to sit on the edge of the bed slowly, and eventually standing in the middle of the room. And I had the DTs, the delirium tremens, and I was shaking from top to bottom. And she was holding on to my both hands like that, and she was shaking as well. And that's when I asked for help. Help! The only prayer uh, that I prayed at that time, one word, and that prayer has been answered one day at a time ever since. But there was something else about this young woman, her eyes. There was compassion in her eyes, far, far, far. Um, she had experienced far beyond her young years. And I realized in that moment that the answer to addiction is love. That what we are looking for is love. And then, subconsciously, I think, I made a decision to provide that love in whatever way I could. But first, I had to learn to love myself, and that's where the treatment centre came in. And a tough time it was there, to be honest with you. But I was terrified of being thrown out, and I was prepared to take um, tough love, and it was really tough. And for me, it worked. It was exactly what I wanted to hear and what I needed to engage with. I had to embrace that dark side of my psyche, the things I'd avoided looking for at all my life. Can I just quickly ask you to say how this period of your life impacted on your wife and your children? Yes, well, you know, my, my eldest daughter was telling me recently and, and in order to recover, we have to listen and take some uncomfortable truths on board, you know, and not make things better for them or justify our behavior. My eldest daughter would say, Dad, when you were drinking, it was all about you. And now you're in recovery, it's still all about you. You know, we are the ones who've had to change our lifestyle. We had to go to Al-Anon and Alateens. My wife went to Al-Anon to get support and hear how other wives and husbands were dealing with their partner's addiction. And my children went to Alateens and to share their pain and having to grow up with a, an irresponsible dad who was never there for them. Um, so, yes, thank God. Um, I think, you know, the, the addict quite often is labelled as the scapegoat, uh, quite often for the family ills. The family will choose somebody to fail quite often. I was the one chosen to fail in my family and I was put into that pigeonhole. So, um, but the family itself really has to understand that they play a part in it. It's a family illness. And unless every part of that system realizes that they need to change, then quite often, you know, that's when tragedy happens and marriages end quite often, you know, or relationships come to an end because the recovery can't coexist with the illness. Um, they can't live together. So something has uh, to give. So, yes. Thank God, my family were all singing from the same hymn sheet. Mm, thank you, Winford. Well, your next piece of music really 
is a very moving piece of music and, and probably encompasses all the elements that you just talked about. So it's um, Mozart Requiem, um, it's Lacrimosa. So why did you choose this one? Well, towards the end of, of my acting career, and uh, you know, I'd done many, many things. I'd written many, many programs and had been very, very successful uh, in my career, really. It's amazing how we can keep these things going, um, keep these plates spinning in the air. But this was the production that really shone of all, all the things that I've done. I played um, uh, uh, the main part in um, um, Amadeus the play Amadeus. I can't remember the character now. Um, Salieri. Salieri, who was envious of Mozart's talent and gifts and so forth. I was on stage for two and a half hours. It was the pinnacle of my acting career and I got to um, listen to some wonderful music throughout the production and this was one outstanding. And you can hear um, the coffin being dragged along the ground in this piece and here it is as if my old life really the life of debauchery of alcoholism and hurting myself and other people was also being dragged painfully across the floor and put into its grave once and for all
So Molsat uh, again um, has won the day in your choice of um, music. You, you mentioned just now that this experience you had in the production of uh, Amadeus. Amadeus was the pinnacle as far as you're concerned of your acting career? It was uh, of the acting career um, without a doubt. Um, I then went on to um, be a very successful uh, scriptwriter and uh, and to act in a, in a television series that started with a film which won awards uh, about my early childhood and in the 60s, growing up in the 60s. And then I wrote a series for six years and then I finished with um, uh, a major production at the Nationalised Television again in Bangor, funnily enough. And then I knew that uh, that uh, things were coming to an end. And I was filming on the side of a mountain. You must remember now that my goal in life was to make money, was to be successful, to get all the material things I wanted. And all of a sudden, in recovery, these things came to me. Albeit, after five years of struggle, uh, the first five years of recovery, very much like a, um, uh, an oil tanker heading towards the rocks. The engine was in reverse, the steering was to the left, but yet the momentum of my drinking years was carrying me towards the rocks. And, you know, my debts trebled in those three years. No career move was really happening. And I thought, you know, I've got to, got to keep going. I've got to believe that things will get better. This is where faith and trust came in. You know, that I had to stick to it, knowing that things would come better. And gradually, of course, that big, big tanker started to veer off the rocks and move away. So my career really started to take off then. So I was at the top of my game. I was a high-earning uh, uh, writer and uh, actor, and I was filming on the side of a mountain in North Wales. And there's nothing more boring than filming on the side of a mountain in North Wales, believe you me. And that's when the idea came to me that there's more to life than this. And um, in, as part of my recovery, I'd noticed a gap in provision. I'd noticed that services historically in this country is an acute model, really. By that I mean there is a, a beginning and an end to it. It might be SEMS counselling sessions or three months in rehab, but it comes to an end and there's more and more compelling evidence to suggest it doesn't work particularly well because it's an acute model trying to deal with a chronic long-term condition so without providing ongoing support and aftercare you're really throwing good money after bad so I kind of kind of promised to myself that once I'd retired I would uh, set up a charity that would address this gap but then on the side of that mountain in North Wales the idea came that perhaps well if I'm going to do this properly maybe I need to get trained properly to do it so that's when the idea of going back into college came into my head Brilliant. Well, we're going to leave you at that stage, uh, Winford, on the side of that mountain, on the top of the mountain there. And um, I'm going to say a few thank yous. There's one more song to play. It's, it's a hymn, but we'll talk about that in a moment. So, um, yes, just a few thank yous. Thank you so much, Winford, for coming in today. It's, it's just been amazing to listen to your story. Um, thanks to Carol um, for co-presenting and thank you very much to all you listeners. You know, um, we really need you to, to keep listening and to 
follow all the episodes. I'd also like to thank The Living Room and Adveriad, who we couldn't put this together without them. And yes, please, please join us for the next episode and, and see what happens when um, Winford comes down from that mountain. So, Winford, you've you know got one more hymn I think you've chosen. Would you like to just introduce that and tell us why you've chosen yes, that it's particular a, it's song? It's a Welsh hymn. It's, it's my favourite hymn. Uh, you know, I, I believe that we live in the age of miracles. I think uh, in order to go on this journey of recovery, you have to believe in mystery and you have to believe in miracles. And uh, I am an example of that. I am uh, a miracle that my life has been transformed completely, really. And I have found what I was looking for, that joy that was so missing from my early childhood. So it says in, in the chorus, it says, Hallelujah is in my soul. And uh, I say amen to that. It's uh, the hymn translated uh, is, You make the miracle, Jesus, Son of God. And uh, well, you're looking at one of them as I look out at the three of you, Carol, Julie and Greg here. We're all miracles. Thank you.